Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And we have a wonderful guest on with us this morning. We have the amazing Dr. Laura Robinson. How are you this morning, Laura? Good morning. I'm good. We are so excited to have you on. It's it's kind of a funny story. Um, how we even how we even ended up at this point, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So Land, Landon, tell us what happened at four o'clock in the morning a couple of days ago. <laughs> well, you know, with all the weird uh, stuff that goes on in Mormondom, I couldn't sleep, and uh, so I, was, I woke up and I was uh, reading through some articles. I was just looking for some information on this Tim Ballard, and I ran into this great article. Uh, and started reading it at four in the morning, and I I immediately text Rebecca and said, "Oh, we've got to get we've got to get uh, this person on uh, the show. She just really got a lot of good points here." And so I forwarded that, and amazingly, Rebecca within twenty four hours had her <laughs> track down and <laughs> scheduled for the show. Good job. <laughs> Yeah, it was funny because I I was not awake at four in the morning. Um, I had just gone to sleep, but I woke up like at six and I'm like, oh my gosh, this looks amazing. And so I did. I started reading. And this is very funny. I'll tell you this, Laura. Just yesterday, a couple of friends of mine in the post-Mormon, you know, digging into information sphere, yeah. they go, I we found this person who's talking about this. She's amazing. Her name is Laura Robinson. And I said, <laughs> having her on tomorrow morning and they sent me an emoji of just their head exploding they couldn't believe it so so yeah I think a lot of people are are you know kind of discovering your articles and yeah. really really interested so let me quickly um read your your bio is just so cute I just love it um so as I said Dr. Laura Robinson with a PhD um from Duke in New Testament um you can follow her if you're interested in the New Testament theology crochet i love that pop culture and my very favorite one landon you're gonna know why i love this excessive cat documentation <laughs> <laughs> my my husband and i have two cats they oh. are uh they're the light of our lives <laughs> and, uh, we take a lot of photos of them so well you may not know this but the producer of mormonish is my cat named todd so oh, he's highly involved lovely. he chooses most of our guests and our content so <laughs> now everyone's going to tune out. We're crazy. That's right. No, I understand that. So anyway, we've had we've had a lovely conversation with Laura the other day to kind of plan this. And and like Landon said, just, you know, a series of articles and, and just really interesting information from a different perspective. We're all like really locked into this, you know, Mormons talking about Mormonism and talking about OUR and Tim Ballard. But, you know, mm -hmm. this is a much broader, you know, situation and issue. So this is going to be a really fresh perspective. And so um, we'll just let... Um, um, Laura kind of explain how how did you even get interested in this well it's been a whirlwind uh I um I was explaining the other night on the phone uh, I I do not have a background in investigative journalism journalism anything like that I um my background is history I graduated with my PhD in uh religious studies in May uh I just finished my doctorate in that and um you know, most of my background is in ancient history, ancient texts, ancient languages, archaeology, that kind of, you know, I mean, archaeology as it relates to these texts. I've never, like, done archaeology, right? But, uh, you know, mostly ancient history, right? So if you're, if anyone's interested in, like, the Bible or New Testament, uh, we do have the New Testament Review as the podcast I co-host uh, with my friend and fellow Duke grad, Ian Mills. So that, that's most of my background, right, is trying to, you know, reconstruct meaning behind ancient texts or, like, the lifespans of ancient texts uh i not not investigation right um but i have been very involved in the um in post-evangelical spaces i was raised evangelical i'm still a christian but not in that particular stripe 
Um, and I've been very involved in, you know, a lot of the ways in which media creates uh, evangelical culture, the way in which it creates like gendered expectations of evangelical culture. That's been a subject I've been really interested in writing about. I've got a webinar coming up on that. But um, anyways, uh, I'm trying to keep this relatively streamlined. My brain is an exploding star at all times. But uh, so anyway, uh, I, uh, I heard about this movie in the, towards the end of June and then eventually July. And I just kept hearing people talk about it. And I had already, I had been reading the work of people like Michael Hobbs already, not out of interest in this particular thing, but just because I like his writing about sex trafficking and the way in which trafficking panics have been very conducive to, you know, on one hand, like creating these extremist QAnon movements, but also in a lot of ways in just unhelpfully expanding the power of the deep state and justifying uh, you know, ju justifying increased uh, surveillance or uh, carceral practices, right? You know, and just people have this image in their head of trafficking uh, of, you know, like kids in boxcars getting shipped across national borders when, you know, a lot of times it's just these massive fences getting slapped on older foster kids and their younger foster kids getting involved in survival sex, right? And, and just like the ways in which we have a narrative that does not match the really aggressive ways we're treating it, right? So this was just already something I was I was aware of. You know, um, my husband is a uh, uh, is a pastor and a theolo he has a background in pastoral theology, and we've done a lot of work uh, in writing on the past on uh, you know carceral and punitive practices in the United States and the way theology interacts with it. So this was just already slow pitched down the plate for just everything I'm obsessed with, right? Me and I kept hearing people talk about this movie. Sound of Freedom and how inspiring it was about sex trafficking. I start hearing this plot. I'm like, I don't think that happened. That just doesn't. <laughs> I don't think that happened. You <laughs> saw it right away. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. And, wow. Well, and I didn't. I didn't know who Tim Ballard was. I didn't know what Operation Underground Railroad was. I had no idea this had anything to do with Mormons. Uh, I did not know anything about this. I went. I was a total. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to say Operation Underground Railroad version, but with, you know, now I've, that's, that feels like really loaded language. <laughs> but anyways, I, yes, had, yeah. I had, I had no idea. I had no, I, I had read Meg Conley's article in Slate years ago, but had no idea this was the same group, right? So I started uh, reading, uh, you know, so I just, I figured that this would be this very easy blog piece of, you know, here's the story that made it to theaters. I'm going to compare it to what actually happened. And then I'm going to tell this story as a way of like, how do Americans want to sanitize and saw off the rough edges and not think about complicity in systems of power or finance when we talk about traffic? Like, how, did, how do we doctor these stories to make them friendly for an American audience? That was what I thought the pitch was going to be. Uh, 90 hours later, <laughs> I realized <laughs> I had... <laughs> No idea what, you know, what I was getting into when I started this, because, you know, the, what I saw is that, like, you know, Angel Studios and Operation Underground Railroad would have these blogs where they'd say, you know, what's the true story behind this is. And then that started to get me to the story of Guardian Marty, right, of and what actually happened there, right? And then, you know, again, I started reading Operation Underground Railroad's narrative of what happened. And once again, I'm reading this, like, I don't think that happened, right? And then, you know, and then you start like every time you start pulling something a little bit back. And finally, um, to make a very, I've been monologuing a lot, but to make a very long story short, after I kind of posted this initial series of articles going into this very first orphanage thing 
that happened in Haiti. And I was just sort of proposing that, like, I don't think the evidence that this was labor sex trafficking is there. I think this is actually looks a lot more like forms of um, exploitation that Americans are very comfortable with uh, through things like, you know, orphanage tourism uh, occasionally or, uh, you know, in, in illicit adoption practices, right? Like none of this is screaming child sex trafficking to me. And none, I'm, not, I'm not seeing any evidence and the numbers don't work out, right? So anyway, I write this whole series just on what I think has been misrepresented about this very first thing. And then Lynn Packer calls me on the phone. Right? <laughs> and uh, I, get, I had no idea who Lynn Packer was. Uh, I, um, I, I had written these articles while I was starting this new one, I had been trying to get some stories on uh, information about who Earl Buchanan was uh, because of his um, association with uh, w with the dog tag story that's in the movie. And, you know, I, I saw that like Lynn Packer had some information about it. I was sort of pulling some early stuff. And anyways, to make a very long story short, that was um, I, Lynn Packer. He actually didn't call me. He, he, he emailed my husband uh, because my husband has a rarer last name than me. And, uh, you know, he... My, my husband just you know yelled upstairs one day it's like do you know who lynn packer is you trying to get a hold of you i was like i, I think you know who, who that what? is <laughs> what a funny story so, yeah so anyways make a very long story short we talk on the phone and then i'm even further down the rabbit hole because now i have all everything he's got right i start looking at all his work and just you know anyways the rest of history and we've been I, I've since gotten to know the little network of people who work on this. You know, there's not very many journalists who've been, and I'm not even a journalist, right? But there's not a whole lot of journalists who've been working on this really hard. But I've kind of since gotten to know everyone in it, what everyone specializes in, you know, and kind of started handing stuff back and forth. And that's, uh, and that's, that's where that ended up. <laughs> so. Wow. And, and then we, every Oh, go ahead, Landon. The way we found you was uh, the the article that you'd written was called "Don't Give Your Money to Operation Underground Railroad." Uh, yeah. So that, you were you were on this uh, between when the Sound of Freedom came out and when this yeah. big story broke. So you had no yes. idea what you were <laughs> stepping into I, when you 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 were just trying to say, "I don't think right. this is a place you should give your money," and all of a sudden it's uh, yeah. exploded into this uh, huge story uh, that that you're now part. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I knew these allegations were out there from talking to people behind the scenes. Um, and then, you know, it, and I, when I first wrote this article about the movie, I wasn't even really specifically going after OUR. It was more just about the way in which Americans take on these Global South narratives. Um, but then, of course, by the time I talked to Len Packer, I was like, I am prepared to make some much more bold statements about this organization. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, in, in that, that article, the Don't Give OUR Your Money, that was that was at the time at which Len Packer had fully joined the party. Uh, you know, I, I, I joined his party more. He, he'd, he'd had this party going for a long time and then I, I came late. Uh, but, you know, on my end as a writer, uh, you know, this for me, it was trying to... Uh, you know, it, I, I, my, my goal with that article was to try to bring Lynn Packer's work to the evangelical audience I was seeing identify with this movie because, you know, I was thinking that, like, I don't, I don't think anybody in my camp from my background knows who Lynn Packer is. But then you start talking to Mormons about Lynn Packer. And they're like, oh, my God, Lynn Packer. You know? Lynn Packer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, American religious silo oh. is. Yeah, that's that's and that's a good point because you're writing to a evangelical uh, mm -hmm. 
audience, which yeah. we know that this this didn't play to just Mormons, but uh, yeah. very much to the Christian right, uh, really yeah. got jumped on board with this and and really mm -hmm. started giving money, donations, uh, backing this this organization, which we now know that Tim was actually using, you know, part of his uh, plan was to yeah. bring people to Mormonism. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of the cr early crowdfunding for Sound of Freedom was done at these QAnon rallies, which is hand-holding with, uh, with the evangelical movement in a lot of ways, right? So, yeah, that was... Um, and of course, Angel Studios is it, it's it's origin. You know, it, it, this is not the same as OUR, but the studio that put out Sound of Freedom. Uh, that studio's roots are Mormon, but they have also yes. put out this show, The Chosen, which yes. is a mega hit in evangelical spaces. So there is a lot of you know Mormon evangelical crossbreeding uh, between these systems. You know, so. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, I think our idea today, just because we were so impressed with, and this is like a four, a three-part article. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're yeah. Gonna, well, oh, I think. Yeah. Go ahead. So the, the don't give OUR your money series is two parts. Okay, um, the okay. breakdown of the orphanage thing and all the component parts. That was a, that was actually a five-parter before it. Yeah. Uh, it's called, and it runs through a few different titles. Like the first one's called The Horrible True Story Behind Sound of Freedom is probably our fault. That's two parts. And then Cabal Goggles is two parts. And then the last part is the um, what we talk about when we talk about trafficking. So it's uh, written a lot on this. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's a lot. Everybody just Google Laura. And I'm not kidding. You will be amazed at the, these insightful, wonderful articles. So today we kind of made some slides, as we often do, right, Landon? Yep. Um, just kind of um, so that Laura can kind of take us through um, like she said, just some insights and sort of some claims that she wants to address with OUR. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen everything discussed out there in the different spheres, but I thought this was a very consolidated, concise way to kind of go through it, which is why I think we yeah. were so attracted to this article and the information. Yeah. So, so we're basically just going to get, have Laura kind of take us through yeah. her thoughts and her article. And yeah, and she basically discuss. has five, five claims that we're going to go through. Um, yeah. So are there six? Is there five or yeah, six? There, there, there were six. six between two, but I don't know if you guys picked all six. Um, okay. I'm actually going to pull up my version of this article so I can use it okay. as notes while okay. I talk. Um, but yeah, no, so so these are all claims that are sort of like either made on behalf of OUR or things that have been, that OUR has, its operatives have said, right? So the first one I wanted to look at is OUR was stuttered because a nonprofit could do more to effectively combat human trafficking than government agents could, right? And the stories that have historically been told to bolster this narrative um, are the stories of uh, the apprehension and arrest of Earl Buchanan and the kidnapping of Guardy Marty, right? <laughs> So the first story, uh, you know, some of this might be old news to your audience. I don't want to, I, I don't want to reinvent a lot of wheels here. But one of the stories that is commonly told as an origin story of OUR is the story of Tim Ballard being present at the arrest of a child trafficker uh, who, um, who, who had been trafficking a five-year-old boy and his sister, and, uh, and and was arrested at the border, right? So here's the here's the thing about that is uh, we we know who this person was. His name is Earl Buchanan, um, and this story is liberally uh, adapted in the in the movie for the kid who gives uh, the dog tag 
to Tim, uh, which is a real story he tells, is a story he actually tells, uh, is loosely inspired by one of Earl Buchanan's victims, right? So the version of the story that is part of OUR lore and eventually makes its way into this film is that uh, Tim Ballard has been part of this group of people who had stopped a trafficker at the border and this five-year-old boy jumps out and uh, runs up to them and leaps into his arms and wants to be saved. And uh, this kid chillingly speaks perfect English because he was kidnapped as an infant by a, by a, but by a trafficker and you know uh tim ballard takes him out a few different times to restaurants this has been robert gerke's done a series of articles about this over the last few weeks uh in the salt lake tribune um and you know he gets taken to the safe house where ballard like takes him out starts asking questions and this kid eventually gives him this dog tag that's you know uh, which you could, you for a while, you could buy a replica of it at the OUR merch store that says, like, Man of God symbolizes his mission. Uh, it's part of his, like, call to go get his sister, right? So, you know, again, the first time I'm hearing this story in its full form, you know, after Sound of Freedom makes me go look up the story behind the story, the first time I'm hearing the story in its full form, you know, you can already hear, like, he was taken as an infant, but wanted him to go get his sister. How do you, how do you know he had a sister? Like, when did that that doesn't make any sense, right? You know, so I think, of course, you start digging into it. And um, Ballard was not at the original stop, of course. The idea that the safe house would just let a HSI employee just leave with an abused child repeatedly is, um, if that did happen, that place needs to be closed immediately, uh, you know? And, uh, and most importantly, Earl Buchanan was not a child trafficker. He was a child abuser. Uh, but he did not kidnap kids and smuggle them in from one country to another. Uh, Earl Buchanan's victims spoke English because they were raised in the United States. They were raised, they were ethnically Hispanic, uh, but they were raised in the United States and Earl Buchanan had access to them because he knew their parents, right? This is the way child abuse usually goes. But most importantly, the way this was stopped, the way that Earl Buchanan was apprehended was through a, a border stop, right? So it's part of this origin story of, you know, like I saw, I, I, I found out about the child trafficker and I knew I had to leave the government and start this new organization to fight trafficking. What's well, a really weird lesson to take away from the government, from government agents doing basically exactly what they're supposed to be doing, right? They saw Effectively, it worked. <laughs> exactly. They, they saw something suspicious at the border, which was a man with a child with no identification. They got more information on where this kid came from and the fact that he had... Um, his grandmother had given him permission to be with this person, uh, but quickly recovered evidence that he had been abused and were able to separate the child and go investigate Earl Buchanan and arrest him. And he's and he's serving federal time for that. Right. Uh, so basically, you know, aside from you know, I'm not trying to, you know, Earl Buchanan's crimes are monstrous. And what he did to his victims is absolutely horrible. I'm not trying to. Uh, relativize that in any way but what I what I think most people would see looking at this is the government is law enforcement working basically exactly the way it's supposed to right is responding to an issue and responding to it effectively so it doesn't really make sense as an origin story then the second part of this is the story of Gardy Marty which happened many years later uh that uh Earl Buchanan was 2006 OUR started in 2013 um Gardy Marty is kidnapped towards the end of 2009, and when exactly OUR gets involved in this is difficult to find, right? So, you know, again, one of the claims that you often hear OUR make, uh, OUR operatives make about this case is that OUR was started to respond to this kidnapping because uh, in law enforcement, no one 
no one was going to be able to go investigate Gardy Marty's disappearance, right? Uh, Gardy Marty was a United States citizen. Uh, he was three years old. He was born in the United States. And the FBI actually was on the ground. Uh, you could, there's records of it in Haitian newspapers. Uh, the FBI was on the ground the week after he was kidnapped and was involved in the investigation. So it's not like the U.S. You know, the U.S. generally has, you know, we, we um, you know, anyone who grew up in the Bush era can tell you the idea that the U.S. is just sort of like uh, handcuffed about ha handling things abroad. That's just it's not true, right? Like we spend billions in foreign aid, a lot of which are tied up in anti-trafficking initiatives. Uh, the U.N. does as well. Like there's a lot of government agencies and entities that do fight trafficking and, and do work on, you know, they, their effectiveness might be questionable, but the idea that the U.S. government wasn't acting on this or other law enforcement agents weren't acting on this, so a nonprofit was necessary, uh, doesn't really make sense, right? Um, what makes more sense is a possible motive for OUR and what was pitched in this very first meeting when Tim Ballard and uh, the people behind Bloodshed Entertainment, Chet Thomas and uh, Darren Fletcher, who had a very rough time in all of this, when they first went on the Glenn Beck show uh, to both pitch this desire for donors to a nonprofit that would fight trafficking, the other thing they were seeking was investors in a for-profit company that would make this corresponding television show like there was never a time where OUR was like a publicly imagined thing people were trying to build towards where TV and promotions and celebritizing and branding wasn't all part of that image right mm -hmm. the idea was always we're gonna have a SWAT team that goes into other countries and catches bad guys and we're gonna make a TV show about it and we're gonna make a TV show about it so like this was always part of it right um, and so I, I think this, this narrative of, you know, the U.S. wasn't doing anything effectively. Well, the U.S. actually was doing a lot. And the U.S. was involved in these cases uh, that are cited as the origin stories of OUR. In the case of Earl Buchanan, about as effectively as law enforcement ever can be, right? Uh, but, but what the U.S. government wasn't going to do is make a television show, right? So that's actually where you do need a, a non-government entity to do this, right? So that's, you know, um, again, I, I can't I can't prove that's why they did it, but it definitely makes more sense than the stories that get told. And of course, the other element of this is that, uh, you know, uh, the whiteboard meeting that has since been, you know, uh, Jimmy Rex was someone who was at this meeting and has talked about it. Paul Hutchinson is someone who's at this meeting and has talked about it. Uh, Dave Lopez was probably at this meeting. I don't know if he's ever talked publicly about it, but a lot of people in this network where um, where Ballard basically laid out his plans for OUR as part of like all these for-profit and non-profit spaghetti bowl things going into it that, you know, another very plausible explanation for why I found OUR is to make a ton of money because, you know, the, the way the whiteboard, the, the way the flowchart of the whiteboard all ends up is publicity and energy and excitement and like $15,000 speaker fees and books coming out and you know, it all ends in all these different avenues by which Tim Ballard is going to get really rich and famous, right? And then a big part of that, you know, the consequence of him getting rich and famous is then he's going to be able to get people into Mormonism, right? So again, we talk about why found OUR, some other things the U.S. government wasn't going to do in their anti-trafficking efforts, in addition to making a television show, was they weren't going to make Tim Ballard celebrities. They weren't going to make him extremely wealthy. And they weren't going to make people into Mormons. So these are all like very plausible motives for why to found this organization. 
That's that that's really interesting that you say that because yeah. that that kind of explains why Sound of Freedom became such a big uh hit that was unexpected yeah. because it th- this wasn't uh, this wasn't a bunch of uh of people who were acting as as child uh, sex trafficking agents. This was yeah. storytellers and filmmakers right. that yeah. for profit that created the organization yeah. and that's yeah. why instead of getting a lot of rescued kids we got a lot of great movies about yeah. skewing kids. A lot of really yeah. exciting documentaries that, you know, if you look at, uh, I sent Rebecca a link to it, uh, but the case file, uh, KSL dropped it. Uh, I hope that was smart. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of notes in the case files of black out this guy's face or he's going to get murdered. Like, I really hope that was a joke. Uh, oh, but, um, you know, yeah, that's, I'm not going to comment on the, on the ethics of doing that one way or another but you know that's a big part of why i wasn't firing the case file out of a cannon but anyways this is the case maybe but yeah you you see that that comes up a lot right is you know we make these this this back and forth between the ngo people and the entertainment side of you know you make these we're making these documentaries that show us carrying guns and training people with weapons and then boys of london freaks out because they don't know that we carry guns and we're actually really not supposed to be carrying guns. And this isn't actually part of our, you know, so there's, there's a lot of competing identities here of this idea of wanting to be marketed and seen as these, this basically vigilante SWAT team that will go into the global South and arrest people. But that actually has no jurisdiction to do that is not insured to do this. Uh, and has made, you know, and, and is agreed to be not an effective way of fighting trafficking for the most part so what do we what do we do with all that it's just very contradictory um and the entertainment i don't think the entertainment and the nonprofit side of this has ever really been resolved so do you mind one second if i go fill up my water bottle go fill your water bottle landon and i will look at your amazing graphic here because that's not my graphic that's lynn (laughs) i was gonna say lynn packer's graphic that's right anytime we show any graphic it always goes back to lynn packard i think this perspective is so interesting landon because you know we're we see it through the mormonism goggles of everything but this is on a bigger scale and just the whole idea that from the very beginning as lynn's graphic shows out that was the idea. Let's make a documentary. Let's take a film crew. Let's document everything we do. Let's try to get this uh, reality show picked up. Then it's not picked up. Then let's make a movie. It's the abolitionist, you know, and then let, yeah. there's publicity throughout with these overarching concepts of money, uh, converts to Mormonism. It's it's just so interesting to see it now in hindsight. Of course, in hindsight, you can see yeah. things more clearly. But yeah, we're all like, how do we not notice? How do we not see this? So yeah, well, you you look at these, you, you look at this uh, graphic here, and what you see is entertainment. You you see Glenn mm-hmm. Beck. Yeah. You see Fletcher yeah. Entertainment. Good point. Uh, you you've got Tim Ballard who is is writing and producing books. Uh, these are entertainers. This is a, a an organization meant for entertainment, not meant for mm-hmm. uh, catching uh, uh, you know sex traffickers. And yeah. and I just th- this theory that somebody can that that has that is not l- trained in law enforcement can go into another country and and rescue kids without uh endangering anybody and that they can do it better than trained law enforcement officials it's that that just is ridiculous well uh, and that's so, you know 
Tim Ballard himself does have a law enforcement background. He worked for the uh, Department of Homeland Security. And uh, John Lines did, too, who was involved for a while. And then Dave Lopez was a, was a Navy SEAL. So, like, you do, but a lot of the, especially in the early ops, a lot of them don't, right? You know, like Meg Conley had never been out of the country before she went on her first raid, right? Uh, you know, and uh, Paul Hutchinson was basically just the guy with a ton of money. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Rex uh, was in real estate at the time. You know, uh, well, Andy you McCubbins, have people like Ed yeah. Smart going out, uh, you yeah. know, Elizabeth Smart's father, who, you know, isn't trained in law enforcement. And you, you had uh, uh, Attorney General Sean Reyes, the Utah oh, yeah. State Attorney General. Now, granted, he's yeah. in law enforcement, but not, you know, as, as a lawyer, not as a trained yeah. agent. Uh, so you've got these. Yeah these big name people that are there, they're there for the entertainment value. They bring yeah. Yeah. a notable name in that, that brings the entertainment. They don't bring uh, uh, knowledge that uh, no. is going to catch yeah. sex traffickers. No, so, oh, sorry. The cats are arguing there. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> My cat's doing hey. the same thing. Well, and then you have Ed hey. Smart though, who I would he say went. pretty instantly went, Oh no, you know, could yeah. recognize that this is not how you typically would do it. And then creates a great deal of distance. So yeah. stories like that, people that know and instantly recognize those are very interesting to me. Yeah. Well, and like, you know, for, for all the operatives we've tried to like get in touch with, you know, when you start like figuring, figure out who they are, I would say the number one uh, job of operatives I found so far is basically entrepreneur, right? They're people who have started businesses or they work in their parents' business. But, you know, but on the whole, it seems like the thing that they mostly have in common is money. Not, you know, and, and um, you know, some of the people who have uh, spoken anonymously to other news agencies to talk about the training, a lot of them have maintained that at the training, that people who did have law enforcement backgrounds were pushed out fairly quickly, that they were not allowed to continue in the process. It actually seems like in a lot of ways, some of the allegations and early hints have been that they were actually really selecting against law enforcement agents right because understand presumably a law enforcement agent would roll up and you know say i don't know why we're doing it this way i don't know why we're going here i don't um so that's where you know when you get to things like paul hutchinson deciding that he had to uh you know molest someone who he believed to be a minor at the time in order to stay alive you know i you know there's a lot of issues with cops in the u.s i'm not trying to say that they would have handled it perfectly but you know it's if, if, if between that and like a sheriff with the 30 year record in the field who had never been, uh, you know, who had never had like a record of misconduct, you know, it, versus a, a business, a, a business leader, why'd you bring the second guy, right? Like, was there really no yeah. one else you could get to do that? Yeah. So, Especially with all yeah. your money and funding, you literally could hire the top yeah. experts and crack team. And yeah. that makes sense because someone who really knew what they were doing, that's not good for the camera right? Because mm -hmm. you're doing yeah. it subtly behind the scenes. No, we need to burst in. We need this yeah. footage. And someone, a true law enforcement officer, they would say, no, our, our yeah. goal, the goals yeah. were different. I think the goals yeah. were different. And, and that <laughs> busting indoors is what's shown on this slide, the sizzle. He had to have yeah, the, the sizzle yes. to sizzle. bring in the money yes. to fund the nonprofits, which were then filtering money into his for-profits. Yeah, so this is the um, this is a the, the whiteboard meeting that was at Ballard's house where basically everyone was introduced to their part of the plan. Uh, this is the legible version of their part of the plan of making 
slave stealers happen, right? And, you know, this is this network of for-profits and non-profits. State slave stealers itself would be non-profit. These three different partners at the top, including M. Russell Ballard, uh, who would be sort of the, the, the overlords of all this. Um, but, you know, you've got these four profits that are affiliated with people like Glenn. I think pretty sure Mercury one, one is Glenn Beck. Yes. Uh, stuff associated with, yeah. Um, and then, of course, the Nazarene Fund was this idea of going to go save victimized uh, Christians in the Middle East when ISIS was coming through. Um, I don't know all the stories behind that, but they're not good. Uh, you know, and then, oh, you, but, but yeah, a lot of this was this idea of like creating a lot of like publicity and excitement around the idea of, you know, we're going to get through this, you know, we're going to have this adoption side of things, right? We're going to put kids who have been trafficked or at risk of trafficking, the, the language changes depending on what day. We're going to put them in, in families and, you know, we're going to raise them and, you know, operate. You know, this whole idea of like basically we're going to get a lot of like excitement and interest and we're going to get people interested in the covenant, you know, this whole like big Mormon national idea. And of course, you'll notice that the way it all flows down is that we're going to make Tim Ballard a ton of money. We're going to have TimBallard.com. We're going to get these giant speaking fees. We're going to make this movie. We're going to, you know, give him millions of dollars. Basically, all of this adds up towards getting people interested in the covenant and making Tim Ballard rich beyond his wildest dreams, right? So, um, as well as the Mormon Church, they were going to funnel some of the money yeah. back to the Mormon Church. Was part of yeah. it with you know Glenn Beck being a Mormon, Tim Ballard being a Mormon, yeah. uh, one of the silent partners, or he says on his whiteboard is M. Russell yeah. Ballard, one of the church uh, leaders. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, there was a lot of people trying to make money in this. Yeah, well, and there's there's a lot of questions about you know not to get too in those. There's a lot of questions about the adoption side, right? Because um, children need families has been variously described as a foundation or as a project of OUR. Um, but Vice's reporting turned up that it was apparently for profit, uh, which, you know, is obviously, a, that could mean a few different things, but a big benefit of being for profit is that in exchange for paying more taxes, you have some more privacy of your business dealings. Uh, but, you know, the whole idea was that they were going to pay they were, they were going to give money to people who were trying to adopt in these like high trafficking risk areas uh, to make the adoptions go faster, right? So, you know, like I hear that, and if you've read anything about international adoption, it's like, who are they? Who are they giving the money to? Like, what what money makes the adoption go faster? What is that? Go and how do you decide who gets the grants and who doesn't, right? Because you know, sometimes they'll say these things about you know we screen people to make sure that they are they're going to be good adoptive parents, but then you get these blog stories that are publicizing it. That's like you know we we didn't even bother with the interview. We just showed up and gave them the money, right? And it was like, well, what is all of it? You know, like how do you? It just seems yeah. like there's there's a lot of potential for a lot of really funny money happening. Oh, and then of course you donate to Children Need Families by giving it to OUR. So OUR is a nonprofit, and then Children Need Families is a for profit. So you know, at some point, this is all starting to look a little shell company ish, right? You know, so how does how does that happen? Um, well, no, Mormons no are one known does for shell companies, companies like LDS Church. Yeah. <laughs> Mormons. yeah, they're known for that. So, no, I feel the adoption angle is big, too. And I think there'll be more on that. Yeah. I think once kind of the Tim Ballard dies down a little that they'll really yeah, focus on that. that there's a lot going on there. Got a lot of questions about that. So, but anyways. Okay, so claim number two. OER has never found Gardy, but every effort it makes looking for him rescues more kids. Who is Gertie? Oh, uh, Gertie is a three-year-old boy who was kidnapped from his church parking lot in Fontmara, Haiti, uh, in December, towards the end of uh, December 6, 2009. Uh, his father, Gesno Marty, was a bishop in Port-au-Prince. 
Uh, and he, um, early papers disagree over whether or not there were two people on the bike or one people on the bike. Uh, Lynn Packer, who talked to people who were there at the time, uh, there were apparently, whether or not there were eyewitnesses and who they were has been really disputed. Uh, one of Gary's brothers was apparently there, and it's not clear if he was ever, his statement was ever taken on board. But anyways, um, attention fixates, especially once the FBI gets involved on a man named uh, Carlos Bristol who was a returned Mormon missionary. Uh, he was quite young. Uh, he was arrested for this and uh, questioned. It's not clear when or how he gets out of jail. He was tor he was questioned uh, under torture. Uh, he was tortured by, it seems, the Haitian police, uh, in, according to a slave stealers podcast, um, but did not confess to the crime, did not confess to having it. There's a million stories about Gardy that have been floating around over who did it and why, uh, there's a really weird thing that happens in the abolitionist TV show and movie where a man explains that Gardy was killed by a rival gang after he was kidnapped and thrown into a latrine. Uh, and this, no one ever comments on it. And I don't know why they put that whole story in the documentary. And they're just like, yeah, that's, uh, that was what he said. I don't know. Um, you know, we, we can't, very little information has ever been made publicly known about who took Gardy, what happened and why, except that there was a ransom involved. There's a request for a ransom, uh, which fits with what we know about Haiti, you know, being tied to Americans uh, and especially American money puts you at really high risk for kidnapping and ransoming in Haiti uh, because of um, be because of the, the, the ransom issue and the poverty there. So, you know, M Mormons, Mormon Bishop having his kid kidnapped makes a lot of sense with what we know socially about crime in Haiti, right? Anyways, OUR gets on the scene. For, so, oh, and then trail goes cold because six weeks after this is the Port-au-Prince earthquake, right? Between 100,000 to 300,000 people die. Uh, police are completely overwhelmed. Uh, it is one of the worst natural disasters in history. If there is a rival, it's the uh, tsunami, which, you know, the 2004 tsunami, which hit hundreds of areas not just one but um port-au-prince earthquake major disaster trail goes cold uh several members of the, of the marty family die in this but anyways uh the the search the official search for guardian essentially, essentially ends after this right so uh what happens next eventually our gets involved in the story because uh the martys are mormons they are interviewed by desert news and a few other uh uh, people who are on the ground in, in Haiti covering the earthquake. And the story of the kidnapping eventually gets back to Ballard. And Ballard flies uh, Gesno up sometimes towards the end of 2013. It's not clear if it's before or after the, uh, the Glenn Beck pitch, right? Sometimes towards the end of 2013, it seems uh, he brings Gesno Marty up and basically says that like they're going to use OUR to find Marty, right? Uh, when they get there, they fixate on uh, not Carlos himself, but on Carlos's godmother, uh, Eros Deligran, who is list who is apparently listed as his emergency contact in his um, uh, in his his uh, prison intake form. Right, uh, Eros. The, the story here of what uh, yours has happened and what actually happened uh, is difficult to determine between right uh eros runs an orphanage that oer has described as off the books it actually um was registered with the government its accreditation seems to be in dispute some people said it was uh it had been 
uh, it, it, it had simply expired, uh, right? Other people said that it absolutely was up to date. Um, some people said it was licensed to, you know, I mean, this is, you have to remember, this is all in the context of a government that is incredibly corrupt and mostly failing, right? So, you know, there, there's a lot of language in the papers about, you know, Eros is immediately suspe- suspicious because she ran this fake orphanage, right? No, I, I Eros's orphanage partnered with a number of major nonprofits, both secular and religious. Uh, there was a ready, constant stream of uh, American, N- Netherlands, Canadian, French uh, missionaries and visitors who would come through and assist and help. Uh, it was extensively photographed. People were taking photos of this place all the time. Uh, and there were, you know, like I said, there were NGO people in there all the time. It was registered with the World Food Bank. There's like, if this is a fake orphanage, what is a real orphanage, right? <laughs> it seems like, uh, you know, so, but, but anyways, interest fixates on this because she's Carlos's godmother, right? It seems like what happens is that OUR decides that uh, Eros has uh, had got Guardi, had Guardi after the kidnapping. Um, And because she was, you know, eventually they catch her on film uh, agreeing to what OUR describes as trafficking children, uh, that she's selling kids out the door as fast as you can get them. This does not fit with any of the publicly available data. It seems like what's much more likely happening is that Eros is arranging. adoptions with connections in the passport department is what it actually seems is happening um you might say you know oh that's that's corrupt you know the most legitimate adoptions in haiti usually you know if you're not bribing the passport guy you're bribing ibesr you're right you know like this is again this is not america it's the you know like you have paying bribes to get the government to work for you is part of how people live in haiti right i'm not saying this is great and there's no vulnerability of abuse here but what this doesn't make you is a sex trafficker right so they fixate on this. They decide, uh, you know, on this orphanage. They they go in. They film it. They run this thing on uh, the orphanage director, and they and they don't find Guardi. And they, you know, what 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 it says in all OUR media at this point is she had already sold him, right? So you know, it's the first time I read this. I was like, oh, Yahtzee, he's in the United States. Just Candace, who was adopted from you know Haiti, and do that. You know, we'll find him in no time. Uh, what, what's actually more likely is that he just knows never there at all. The evidence that Guardi ever made it to Eros's orphanage is incredibly circumstantial. Um, but anyways, this starts the idea of every time we go look for Guardi, we you know they make a big deal out of how when they when they raided this orphanage, they rescued all the kids there, right? Um, how, what does it mean to call these kids rescued, right? You know, they were in an orphanage and they're moved to a different orphanage. Uh, you know, there's, a, as I said, there's no evidence that Eros was trafficking children uh, for sex or labor purposes. It seems like the primary place that she was, you know, was, was arranging this was for people to raise them as their own kids. And like the Ballard family has two of these kids now and is raising them. So, you know, if you want to say that, you know, these are these totally undocumented kids, we don't even know where they came from and they could have gone to anyone. Well, they, you were apparently okay adopting them, right? So like, what what did you rescue them from? What did, what actually happened? So the the language of rescue is really complicated in that case. And then of course this leads us to the you know adventures of Janet Rustin the psychic. Uh, that Janet Rustin continues this narrative out that where Eros was had sold Gardy is to these labor camps on the border of the Dominican Republic and Haiti. Um, why someone would pay $15,000 to the passport office to buy the sugar king labor of a three-year-old when adult <laughs> men in Haiti are desperately impoverished and will do it for free is 
the math doesn't work, but whatever. Um, but anyway, so then they, they start going to look for these labor camps on the Haitian border where they're holding all these child slaves. Of course, they never find any, they never find any labor camps, not a thing, uh, because, you know, in, in what we now know is that this long search for Gertie where, you know, he's always just, uh, you know, every time we go look for him, we find more kids. Uh, what we now know is that none of this is following intel on people who have like seen Gardy or know someone who might have taken him, right? Or, you know, this is all based on filling out this story about Eros and her orphanage, uh, which was already shaky, and then filling it out with the input of a psychic who thinks she's talking to Nephi, right? So to make a long story short, I think it's very, it's incredibly difficult to make the case that anyone has ever been saved in the process of looking for Gardy. I think there's very good evidence that people have had their lives destroyed and been hurt tremendously. Uh, you know, as I said, I am not convinced that anyone involved in that first orphanage thing was really doing something that required a, a sting and an arrest, right? You know, um, but, but you know, but but also a lot of that's changed since I started learning more about Haiti's orphanage culture and you know who who people. Well, when you start talking to Haitians who have been involved in orphanages, who have worked in them or have run them, uh, they'll tell you pretty fast who's on their bad list and who's on their good list, right? I have never met someone for whom Eros was on their bad list. Never met someone. Um, in fact, most people thought she was pretty exemplary. Uh, so, you know, again, saying that, it, it, again, I can't substantiate it. I can't, you know, I'm just, I'm just saying what people have told me, right? So I think in light of all that, it's very difficult to make the case that these kids were saved, right? But then when we get to all the other hunts for Gurdy in Haiti, you know, the case that kids are being saved is even harder to make because they're not even finding any kids, right? There's no there's no labor camp. They're actually taking kids out of, you know, they, they, they make a lot of hay in some of the documentaries that they're finding uh rest of X, the uh which is a haitian system of putting uh impoverished parents will uh have their kids stay with more well-off families and they'll do chores for them in exchange for food and lodging you know there is some record of abuse happening in these situations uh but it's a dominant part of haitian culture uh especially for the impoverished uh and um you, you know and again like even if they went and they go they go get all the rest of it out of the houses and turn them back to their families then what the reason why they're in these other houses is because their parents can't afford to feed them are you going to feed them now are you going to you know it's, it's, it's impossible to separate if you want to call that trafficking and say that, like you know oh, we're seeing evidence of this everywhere cool you can't bust down a door grab the kid and give them back to their parents and be like we saved you was and, and i don't even think they've made that claim but it's not the kinds of child trafficking on the whole they have found evidence of in Haiti that they've made publicly available at least just really can't be solved with the with the raid rescue model that OUR favors, right? So um so yeah, I there's been a lot of fundraising off of Gardy's name. Uh they've sold hats for Gardy, they've had a golf uh Gardy golf tournament, they've had a you know, they 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 retold this whole story in extended blog form uh, in July of 2020, which was sort of the height of the Save the Children craze in the United States, right? You know, and what we now know from, or what, what David Lopez, director of Austin Haiti, has since alleged, and you can see it in the KSL files, is that in 2020, no one was looking for Gary in Haiti. You know, they were, they were merchandising the hell out of his name. Uh, they were telling a story everywhere they could. They were, you know, using the name Gary's Heroes to describe people who are giving 
a certain amount of money, but the director of ops says no one was looking for him. And in fact, another group of people who tried to go find him, uh, they shut him down and they got the Haitian government to help them. So, you know, they weren't, the, 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 we, the, the times that they have been looking for Gertie, but there's not a lot of evidence that they've saved anyone. Uh, on the times that they weren't looking for Gertie, they were still using his name. And when they weren't looking for Gertie, they didn't apparently didn't want other people to look for Gertie. So it's it's very difficult to make this claim that, you know, the, the Gertie effect, the idea that every time we go looking for Gertie, we find more kids. This, this is not a lot of evidence that's true. This was one of the things I, uh, when I put out initially that uh, I didn't think this Operation Underground Railroad was legitimate in doing things, I got a lot of really harsh feedback uh, from people, yeah. you know, saying this is a real problem. This is it doesn't matter whether you know, what does it matter as long as they're bringing attention to this issue? But we see that that that's dangerous thinking because you're actually yeah. destroying lives of of these Haitian people. And you can't yeah. say, well, it's OK to destroy these Haitian people's lives as long as Americans feel good about giving. Yeah, the, yeah. You, you have to you have to look at the results and you have to look at the methods and say, is this a, a proper uh, organization? Uh, just because they claim to be doing something doesn't mean they're legitimate. Right. And, and also, you know, even the, the potential for things to have gone much worse is even more severe. Right. So in the yeah. case of, you know, the, the, the big hunt for Gertie on the border when, you know, the story has been doctored and told in a lot of different ways when a group of people confronted them and told them to leave and they had machetes and guns and they were really agitated and upset. Uh, you know, the way this story has been told in some narratives is because they wanted to keep all the trafficking secret. Uh, the thing that's explained in the documentary is that they think that they're a group of Americans scouting for natural resources because of all the cameras, right? And um, in Haiti, you know, Americans going to go scout and steal natural resources has been a longtime problem uh, of impoverishing this country. They create, you, you know, you can read about gold mines on the gold mines on the Haiti DR national border that um, create massive environmental catastrophes. That uh, you know, these companies that go down to go mine, they reroute rivers, they they pollute massive amounts of soil, they make farming impossible. There's a lot of really good reasons why Haitians would be terrified of really well-equipped, equipped rich Americans with cameras and sound equipment trying to like figure out what's around because it looks like these mining operations, right? But what would have happened to them if cooler heads hadn't prevailed and somebody did kill the camera crew, right? You know, in addition to losing the lives of the camera crew, which would have been, you know, very sad. I'm not saying it wouldn't be, but this poor village, right? What, if, what would have happened to them? You know, that if they had killed American citizens, that's a huge deal internationally. And it would have been an international incident. It probably would have resulted in the arrest and in, uh, in, in likely deaths or torture of people who were involved in that, of people who had killed. And, and again, for what? There was no labor camp. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not when you say, you know, like at least somebody's doing something or at least somebody's trying. The possibility of doing something horrible that you don't even know you're doing if you don't understand an issue or you don't understand a culture is really, really high. And, you know, it's um, in the, I, I don't know, you know, it's like we, we can talk about whether or not an orphanage director who is arranging off the book, the adoptions needs to be arrested and prosecuted. I think that's a tough question that really Haitians should be directing. Uh, but in the case of these people who were, you know, threatened with the possibility of American investors destroying their home, 
no, they don't deserve to be put in a position where they feel like they have to defend themselves physically. And and if you don't understand that and why that conversation would happen, or then you don't, then why are you there? Then why are you there? And, and, and I think that that's what's really tough about this, is the sort of defending, at least someone's doing something, or at least there's awareness. You know, like awareness of ignorance is not awareness, right? Awareness is supposed to be, like, awareness at its best is actionable, true knowledge, right? So like awareness of measles. How do you prevent measles? You know, you wash your hands, you get the MMR, you, you know, like that kind of, you know, like you don't, talking about measles in distance saying that like, oh, you know, it comes from eating bad meat, right? And like being outside when it rains, you know, you, and then you, and then I come and tell you, you know, that's wrong. And then you say, you know, at least I'm spreading awareness. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're not spreading anything, right? You're spreading, you're spreading misinformation. And a lot of this conversation about sex trafficking and what people say they're doing to solve it, it's really hard to make the defense that they are actually spreading awareness of actionable information, or they actually are doing something that, like, it's, that, that is, it's better for them to do it than to not do it, right? It's hard to make that case in a lot of instances. That is the key. And I've always said dangerous cosplay. And, and you explained yeah. it exactly. It's, it's dangerous cosplay. And a lot of people in the organization, I think, believe their own narrative, that they are yeah. doing good and they can't see this big picture that you and others can see. Yeah. And, and a lot of people have also said that, you know, we really did rescue kids. And I, and I respect that they were there. I respect that they saw things I didn't see. I understand that. But I also would want to drill in a little further and ask, okay, what what do you mean save? What do you mean in this context, right? Um, you know, like Jimmy Rex just did the show about his experiences there and saying that, you know, these girls who are being trafficked, like what you need to understand is like, you know, traffickers don't just have them. They're not like in a box in a basement somewhere that they live in their own homes. And then these people have economic control over their lives. Women are afraid of them and girls are afraid of them and will go do what they say, including sex work, right? So, you know, you say, like, we saved these people. But then what happened, right? You arrested their pimp, but, you know, was he the only pimp in town? Is there no one else who's going to fill that vacuum? Um, how are they going to make money now? Presumably the pimp was the one who was paying for this. And, you know, you, you hear aftercare, the theme of aftercare is a huge one in the in the, the documents that KSL just dropped, right? Of, you know, trying Operation Underground Railroad very deliberately trying to keep the language of aftercare very vague. Uh, because they didn't really have a way to means test or evaluate the services they said that they were partnering with organizations to offer in the global south. They didn't really know if it was effective or not, um, or that uh, they just straight up weren't offering, right? Uh, and just like all the limitations that have come with that. And, you know, there's a point in the abolitionist TV series, I've mentioned it a few times in my blog, where uh, the group is on a raid, and I think this was in Cartagena, uh, and they see a girl who one of their operatives rescued last year, uh, and she's walking the street and she's doing the same thing she used to do. And they get out of the car and they stop and they bring her along and they're trying to help her. And they ask if they can put her into aftercare. And she basically says, you know, well, you guys did that last year. And then like all these problems started for me and no, I don't really, you know, so again, like if that. If you rescue people and then you put them in situations that they were desperate to get out of, did you rescue them, right? And I think that's what's really, especially when, you know, in, in some of these cases when people are uh, being moved across countries for aftercare, right? I think in this specific case, there was a halfway house they had in Honduras, but they were in Cartagena at the time. You know, it's like at some point, it's like, are we sure this isn't snow trafficking? 
right? You know, you take somebody across the border. Like, do they have control over their passport? Do they know? Can they leave safely? Do they know anyone in Honduras? Like, in some ways, this, I don't know why this isn't also trafficking, right? Or why it doesn't create the same, you know, the, um, one of the, uh, the rescues that's been to fairly recently of a group of Colombian women from, uh, that, who were, they were sex workers in Haiti. Uh, the, the context of their trafficking is not really clear. You know, Tim Ballard, of course, has this very cinematic story of them, you know, being drugged in Colombia and flown to Haiti and waking up being raped. And it's like, who, who flew 10 unconscious Colombians to Haiti? Anyways, uh, but, um, you know, you, you hit these, but then, of course, the story that they tell is much more, you know, we flew to Haiti, we, Haiti, we, you know, we didn't know it was going to be sex work, we didn't know that they were going to control our visas, you know, the, the, the much more normal story of trafficking, right? And then, of course, you know, the way that this ends is that OUR has teamed up to fly them to, it seems like, Utah, and now they're in Utah on T visas, and they live there, and that's what they do now, right? So it's, what is oh okay? Well, what does that look like, right? You know, like we know that the wait period for being an immigrant trying to get citizenship in the U.S. is long. Uh, do they speak English? Do they are they able to work, or do they have to work for OUR? Do they have to, you know, again with the KSL documents, um, is is part of their livelihood promoting OUR? At some point, it's just like I I don't know. This is feeling like new systems of control, and it might not be sexual, but it's not. It's not the same as like giving women like freedom and agency and the ability to choose or not choose a certain path for themselves, right? So, anyways, all that is to say, uh, I don't even remember how I got started down this, but uh, yeah, that, yeah. the, the, <laughs> the whole the rabbit hole rescue, keeps going. <laughs> oh, yeah, the, the claims of rescue are really complicated yeah. to substantiate because what does it actually mean to be rescued from trafficking? It's more, it's not. It's not we knocked the lock off the door and then you ran out and you can go back to your, you know, two and a half kids and dog and, you know, it's yeah. not, it's not how it works. But I so. think that's what people think. I think yes, that's what people is, that donate to exactly. OUR, I think that's what they picture. Yeah. And even just listening to you, the questions yeah. and the thoughts that you've brought up, like, why did I not think of this? Why did I not yeah. realize this? So this dialogue needs to continue because I believe most people do have that view. Yeah. And and why would they understand anything differently? They wouldn't yeah. if they're just here donating money to this, you know, yeah. pumped up, you know, media cause. They don't, they don't understand. Yeah. So these dialogues are yeah. very important. Sound of Freedom is presents a version of this that shows up in a lot of like, it was implied in a lot of OUR material and is also just sort of in the American water because of things like Taken, right? Of this idea yeah. that like trafficking starts when kids are kidnapped, right? And that like everything would have been fine if they just hadn't been kidnapped. So now we got to go get them and we got to bring them back, right? Not how trafficking works. It is incredibly difficult to find evidence that that's how most even sex trafficking starts, even sex trafficking of minors, right? So, you know, when you're talking about kids who you're trying to save from being minors in, 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 the, in the sex industry, you know, um, it's not as simple as sending them home. It's not as simple as, you know, as getting them out. There's a reason why these things happen. There's a reason why people in their families, you know, and then we get to the issue of real people being hurt, right? Um, this this showed up this has showed up in a few different media pieces right but of the concern of what happens once you start waving around tens of thousand dollars in the global south that you'll give to the first person who can give you an eight-year-old girl right 
And again, I'm not saying it's okay. I'm saying poverty is complicated. If you go to an area where people can't afford school and they can't afford food and they can't afford medicine, and you tell them that for the low, low price of hundreds of years, I mean, not hundreds of, basically for you, it would be hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, like stuff that Mm -hmm. would keep your family safe and secure and alive and surviving Mm -hmm. for maybe a decade or, you know, for, for years, maybe. And all you have to do is pass off your 14 year old as an eight year old. Someone's going to do it, right? I'm not saying it's okay. I'm saying that, you know, if you go into a culture where like they might not share our understandings of childhood in the same way, right? Because like maybe their daughters have been raising the kids for a long time and weren't going to school. Or maybe they, you know, you know there's, there, there's not quite the shared narratives around this. And all you have to do is persuade somebody that you're selling them a child. Somebody's going to take that deal. And I'm not saying that's an okay choice. But I am saying that I don't think those people deserve to be thrown into hell holes where they may or may not ever see a judge or a lawyer because they weren't ever going to do this if you didn't flash the money, if you didn't tell them that you were going to help them, if all they did was this. You know, that's and I think that's a very lot of time. complicated. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's what you know, Jimmy Rex said he saw this. Um, some people who have done gone off the record for Vice have seen stuff like this, right? And where somebody comes along and says, you know, oh, I can totally traffic you. And you dig a little further into this and it's clear their brother and sister and they're trying to get the money together. Right. You know, and that's because you've created some really complicated incentives. And even if you're going to say like, oh, we don't create a demand for child sex trafficking, you, you have created a context where now someone can go to prison for a really long time because of something you did. So, yeah. Um, but anyways, number three, the more donations are you are guests, the more operations you can stage and the more kids you can save. Um, OUR's claims about uh, about operations are really complicated. They uh, it, it seems that they they make claims that they've done a lot of operations. They have resisted the narrative that's been put forth in the Vice and the KSL reporting that they haven't actually really been doing ops in a long time and that they just fund ops and claim the numbers. Um, it's hard, you know, the, the ethics of that and the optics of that are complicated. But what is true is that for a significant chunk of OUR's history, they were running at an insane surplus, right? They were running at a really high surplus. And one thing that shows up in um, the KSL reporting is that for, for a good long stretch, for every dollar that was given to OSL, uh, 33% of that was going to, 33 cents were going to investment, right? And then of that number, you know, 80% of that would go to operations, right? So like, so, you know, even when you say that they were running at this insane surplus and that they were taking in more money than they were spending, a lot of the money they were spending was still just going right back into investments, right? It was going into, uh, into, into building this, this pocket of money, right? Um, and then of course, you know, whether or not it was being funneled into for profits is complicated. Uh, but what's, what's really difficult to find good evidence of is that OUR was expanding its operations really effectively in light of getting money and running really efficiently so that it could save a lot more kids. And, you know, the the numbers game of how many kids OUR has saved and how they're counting has been incredibly complicated, right? You know, like people have made allegations that, you know, kids have been claimed to save who had nothing to do with OUR. uh, But, you know, that's that's a really complicated landscape. But what you do see in the money is that all the places that this is, going uh it seems that once OUR actually did start 
increasing his expenses a lot in light of its incredible surplus. Seems like one place that money went really quickly was massively increasing executive pay. Uh, you know, one way in which Tim wow. Ballard has defended that was that he needed a lot of security around his house now because he was a marked man because of all this. Mm -hmm. uh, Lynn Packer actually just drove to his house and pointed out that you can actually just walk right up to the door and ring the doorbell. <laughs> Did he do that? Did he yeah. actually just do that? Oh my gosh. Lit oh, he's yeah. just, yeah. Again, Instead of doing research, his... you just literally drive right up and walk right I, up. That is I so can't funny. remember which one of his reports it is, but, you know, basically just found him in the white pages, went to his house and just sort of oh, noticed, you know, there's not actually a giant wall. There's not a gate. There's not armed guards. You can actually just walk up to this massive house like any other house. And so, and then also the other reason why I'm dubious of that is, you know, we need, you know, I'm a marked man. I need to make half a million dollars a year to afford all my security. It's like, oh, are, are the traffickers after your CFO too? You know, it's like, I don't, I don't believe you. I don't believe that, you know, so, but those options also expand a lot, right? So there's, there's the real estate holdings. There's, it's, it, it, the, the money side is complicated. It does not actually seem like it's true that there's this perfect inverse of oh you are going on these raids it seems like a lot of more what they're doing is that they're funding uh they're, they're funding police departments in the united states um how they're counting those numbers is weird right that like you know if they there, there's there's been some concern that the way they're counting these numbers is if they buy a, a, a usb sniffing dog for a department and then that dog is used in a case where a kid is found to be sexually abused like oh we saved that kid from trafficking it's like well, he wasn't being trafficked and you weren't there and the, the dog may or may not have been involved in actually solving this case right so it's you know how you count those numbers is really there, there's a lot of questions about it uh i can't i can't prove that they're doing this but it shows up a lot in the ksl files right um and you know the stuff that we can see is that a lot of people are making a lot of money so and so basically um, you're saying that by pumping money into other organizations that are set up to already do this, then they just appropriate those numbers and just yeah. say, you know, when that, yeah. when that organization rescues 20 kids, OUR yeah. says, look, we rescued 20 kids. Yeah. That is so interesting because I, I kept wondering, you know, I listened to his yeah. wife's um, interview and she kept mm -hmm. saying thousands and that, you know, so many yeah. people keep repeating that number. Yeah. Is it just, you know, are they pulling it out of the air or do they actually yeah. put out reports that give these numbers so that people believe it? And that makes sense if yeah. they're appropriating other people's actions. If you look at the KSL files, this is all over the allegations that past employees okay. have made is that they are, uh, you know, that they're putting money into police departments uh, at home and abroad. And then apparently it has been it has been alleged by employees um, who would know better than us uh, that they are using those numbers to post their stats. Right. Um, and if you if you look at if you look at the last 990 AUR put out, most of its grants are going to these. You know, I've got it right here that these uh, these these software things that are designed to help police departments get around uh phone security settings without a warrant so if you like the security state in the police state you know that that's a that's all for you and then a lot of it's also going into adoptions right paying for a lot of adoption expenses giving big donations to um adoption uh agencies right what is that money for where's it going did donors know it was going to be going to adoption these are a lot of questions right we don't quite know a lot of that um, but I, I do think, you know, there's there's one of the KSL files, they talk in a gala about thinking about not just getting to OUR, but through OUR, that they know how to equip people. 
you know, and th this is a tough claim to make, right? If, you know, if, if OUR is taking in all of this money and then they're giving the money to these other organizations that save kids, but then they post the numbers, it's hard to justify that if 33 cents of every dollar is actually going to investments. And then of that, a lot of it is going to pay these incredibly wealthy men who are also oftentimes, it seems, drawing salaries down from for-profit sides as well, uh, you know, and what the relationship between that and the nonprofit. It's really complicated, right? And uh, it, it, it's, um, it's hard to trace exactly where it's going, but even for the most part, it's just, you know, if you care about international adoption, just give to an organization that works on that, right? Like, why, is, why, why do these guys need their ties? Yeah, so, no, that's my thought too, is why yeah. a middleman like that? Why a middleman where, yeah. like you said, your cents on the dollar are not going right to that? And yeah. and maybe it's because it's very convenient. OUR is in your face. We see it all yeah. the time. Many you avenues can buy the merch, to You can go to the gym. Yeah. You can, yeah, you can right. go to the gym and they make yeah. it very easy. Where as if today I said to myself, I really care about this and I really, really want to yeah. make you know, a significant donation, it would take me yeah. a while to figure out what to do. I would exactly. have to do some research. I would have to yeah. decide, you know, what's going to work for, for what's going to be the best use of my donation, where it's very easy just to push a button and say, yeah. there, we yeah. talked to someone who worked in their back office early on and, and yeah. just, by the way, the back office was in a CrossFit gym. In the back, and you know, they were just so mobilized about the money. That's what everybody was doing. Yeah. I'm contacting yeah. donors and checking up on donors whose credit cards had expired, and just you know, yeah. funneling, funneling that. That was the key. And yeah. and I get it. It's pretty easy to go. Oh, oh, you are. I've heard about them. I saw the movie. I yeah. I didn't actually see the movie, but I believe the movie had donation information yeah. at the end of it. So how easy yeah. is that to push that button? Yeah. Where if I wanted yeah. to do something else today, I would have to do a little bit, bit of find research it, on that. Right. And like, there's not a, you know, they've faced some criticism, but in some countries, they've seen people I've spoken to think they're pretty effective. Like IJ, IJM, International Justice Ministry, like there's no movie, right? You know? Yeah. And uh, so people might not have that name recognition in the same way. So. Well, yeah, there's no movie. There's no Glenn Beck radio uh, <laughs> fundraiser. There's no gym. There's there, no, merch, there's no, there's no yeah. LDS apostles getting large donors yeah. to to go and and uh you know make donations to this organization uh you yeah. know they had a big network to to get the money to these guys yeah yeah that's true yeah, exactly. and it's, it's interesting you may not know that the lds church kind of operates a little bit like this you know they take in tithes from members but those mm -hmm. aren't really used for charitable giving they actually mm -hmm. solicit donations from very wealthy lds people they call it lds charities and so the mm -hmm. church will say you know through lds charities we have donated here but yeah. again it's really this middleman it's they're yeah. the middleman so i almost feel like tim ballard is following yeah. this playbook with the shell companies and the middleman yeah. and it works very effectively you know you really people feel like you're doing this, something yeah people have made this comparison also with the missions and the mormon missions right of just sort of like throwing people in who have not really who don't totally know what they're doing or might not speak the language yet mm. or like it's sort of up to you to figure out your direction of it right you know like a lot of these early missions um there was a guy on radio free mormon the other day who he, he had documentation to, to demonstrate he was who he was but he didn't speak anonymously uh while half the crew is coming out of santa domingo is 
driving around the middle of nowhere following a psychic trying to find Gardy. He says that he was filming the other half of the group that went to Puerto Plata and basically had like five days of like beach time to just start figuring out where, you know, the sort of directionlessness of, you know, start going on beaches and asking shady people if they'll sell you children, right? And, you know, as he tells it, because, and, you know, I, I could have told him this, but I feel bad for the young man because he was just out there that, you know, um, he said that, you know, what would happen is that people who, when you personally start asking for this, that like the looks of disgust and horror and people wanting you to leave and, uh, you know, it's, it's understandable, right? But, it, but again, it's part of this, like, I think a lot of this is just the sort of like white American religious narrative when you have a really strong concept of the in-group and the knowing group and the wise group that like, oh well, yeah, of course you go to these countries where they don't have a religion, they don't have our values. And you just ask the shifty guy on the beach uh, and, you know, he says he can sell you some drugs, ask him if he'll also send you a child. And like, of course he would do that. Of course he would, you know, like, no, no, that's not how it works. You know, like there are, you, you can go to a strip club right now and talk to a manager who would put you out on the road if you're lucky alive if you try to buy a child there, right? You know, like how many sex workers are mothers? How many, you know, how many yep. people who, it, it doesn't, it's not like that. The world is not divided up between yep. evangelicals and monsters. It's not divided up between Mormons and monsters. And, you know, in this kind of mindset, I think makes it difficult for people to spot it. And and so. poor people love their children too, amazingly mm -hmm. enough. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> and the reason why they're poor isn't because they're terrible people. It's because, yeah you know colonialism and structural issues and patriarchy and you know anyways so, no and there's an arrogance yeah. there's definitely an yeah. arrogance and, and that's i also listened to the radio free mormon interview it was really good mm -hmm. and i thought so how are you choosing who looks sketchy is it just someone in poverty you yeah. is that sketchy and they look yeah. like they would do this horrific thing probably yeah. because you don't have yeah. any experience in the world and i love that comparison right you missionaries. I have a, a son yeah. on an LDS mission right now. And he it's really, a whole different yeah. world where he is. And some of the things yeah. that he tells me that he's doing or saying, I think that actually might get you in, in trouble. I don't know if you're aware yeah. of the culture where you are or what you're yeah. doing. Be careful, you know, and yeah. you just kind of have this, maybe arrogance is the wrong word. Ignorance is maybe the wrong word. You just don't know. <laughs> yeah. If you're raised it's, in it's a certain culture, yeah. you don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's hyperconfidence. It's the belief that good That's intentions good. and true religion is is enough to get you through life, um, and it's not. It's that is it that is bad the that is bad theology. You know, I mean, the the thing that dovetails I think really nicely with this is um, the Brene the Brene Brock story. Uh, HBO just came out with a documentary on this. I've I've known the story for a while because I'm kind of obsessed with Americans abroad it's this sort of one of my prevailing obsessions uh, about a lady who started a nutrition clinic in, um, uh, in Africa. I can't remember what country it might've been Uganda, but it's no medical training and to make a very long story short, dozens of kids died. Right. And you know, it's called savior complex. Um, it's, I don't, I haven't seen the documentary yet, but Americans should know the story of, you know, why, why aren't good attentions enough? Why is this not enough? You know, so I think that's just really important. So...
Yeah, no, I think I think that's a, a broader story. And I think there's a lot yeah. of things that are going to come out of that for sure. So mm-hmm. um, let me ask you, Landon, what do you think? I know that um, you have a little bit of a stopping point and we're just we're yeah. just getting in and it's so wonderful. I almost feel like maybe since we covered the first three claims, maybe we just have a part two that we film at another yeah. time. Yeah, that's that's a good that idea. Be the other Because yeah, I don't want to cut Laura off in any way on any claim, like shorten anything. I mean, I'm just, yeah, you know, this has just been- listening fascinating the, the amount oh, of information you have and how this works has just been yeah uh, yeah you yeah, just bring I, this perspective that we just appreciate so much that is just kind of we don't have it we don't yeah. have this perspective you have and it's just been wonderful so yeah would totally. that be okay just, oh my gosh totally and like i, I want to be you know if, if anyone hasn't looked at lynn packer stuff you really should almost mm-hmm. most of what i've gotten about our itself you know some of this has been independent investing investigating you know and trying to talk to people in Haiti on the ground who, who knew these, these players, right. And these people, that's been a big part of what I've been doing. Um, but, you know, I think that's just, you know, obviously there's, there's structural issues and there's Mormon issues and there's uh, Utah government issues that Lynn has unlocked. You should totally look into more of that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think a big goal of mine in all this has been to try to bring the global South perspective of how do we think about this as, as mission work? How do we think about this as American volunteerism? How do we think about this as American money in the way in which American money in being white and being, how does that shape your experience going into countries? Because I think one thing people don't understand, uh, I've never been to Haiti. You know, I've only, I've talked to a lot of Haitians since I started this, but I've never been. But I think one thing America that people don't understand and that a lot of Haitians have told me is that it is dangerous for Americans to be there. Uh, not for the Americans, but for the Haitians, because once you are associated with money and power, you have a spotlight on you in poor countries. And once you are associated with the government, uh, the government is often corrupt and the government will often do things that people with money and power want them to do. Uh, you know, so talking about, you know, we, we go, people going down to Haiti and saying, you know, like we worked with the government to arrest 10 traffickers, uh, you know, there, this is not a kid situation where there's a lot of due process and speedy justice and all this. You know, this is a situation where you have come down with money and sometimes weapons, it seems like, you know, and sometimes, you know, it, it, you know, weapons in Haiti is that's a conversation for another day. Right. Uh, but, you know, the, the po- police, police brutality and police massacres have been a huge issue in Haiti. Uh, but, you know, once you come down with money and power and a media presence and the promise of, you know, recognition from U.S. authorities. Like the OUR has flown Haitian politicians to Utah to like recognize them for their work fighting trafficking. It's really easy to create a system where people will do what you want them to do, whether the evidence is there that they did it or not. And I think that what we really need to be thoughtful about is it's not enough to just do something. If you are not thinking about these systems critically and really trying to get the information behind the scenes, you can leave a massive trail of blood. And I think the fact that people don't think about that and root for Americans to get involved without taking that into account, it creates a lot of chaos and a lot of danger. Yeah, that's a, you fly down to, to Haiti with $100,000 and show up at the local police department and say, I, I need to turn in five sex traffickers yeah. on my TV show. You're going to get yeah. five sex traffickers, whether they're sex traffickers or not. 
Exactly. Yeah. Or you come down with, you know, a bunch of wealthy Utah businessmen and say this orphanage has to go because they're trafficking kids and they're going to do it. It doesn't matter. And again, you can say that, you know, like, oh, well, she was caught on record uh, saying that she would, you know, do falsifications of passports. And so, OK, fine. But also, like, what is the other system? Right. Like, What, what you know, compare that to, yeah, you know, OUR has sponsored orphanages in Haiti that do something like 700 adoptions in the last five years, right? Who are they paying? Because if they found a corruption-free way to do adoption, they should tell the rest of the world how they're doing it because that would be remarkable that in the midst of all this chaos and all this corruption, so I, again, it's just, it is, once you start comparing it, it is not black and white. It is not easy to say that, you know, like, oh, these guys are traffickers and these guys are selling kids, but these guys are heroes. They have a, they have a fake orphanage, but they have a real orphanage. And they're doing a legal adoption, but they're doing legal. No, it is, the, 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 you, are, you are choosing sides in a debate you do not even know is happening. And you are putting money into it and you are putting people in prison over it and you're putting weapons into it. Are you sure? Are you sure you are right? Um, and the weapon thing is complicated, of course, because, you know, there's a lot of push pull over whether or not weapons are actually there or not. But, you know, again, with the footage we have, it sure seems that training Haitian people to shoot people has been part of the project. So, you know, um, yeah. Wow. These are such big and broad issues that, yeah. again, tip of the iceberg. I keep using that phrase over and over, don't I, Landon? Because yeah. <laughs> every day there's more to the only the tip of the iceberg. So, no, I think I think this is an amazing conversation. And I think that's what we'll do. We'll yeah. just end here uh, having covered mm -hmm. the first three claims. And then um, we'll have Laura come back on and we'll do a part Sounds two. Good. because. None of these can be handled in just a few minutes. It's not just yeah. a check a box kind of a thing. There's yeah. so many overarching influences and concepts that we need to talk about. And, and your perspective is just so, so unique and, and, and so valuable yeah. to all of us. Yeah, I love that, you know, what we're seeing in Utah in the press is we're seeing the Utah version of this. We're <laughs> seeing we're seeing what's happening in Utah with the AG and the Mormon Church and Tim Ballard mm -hmm. and OUR. You're showing us mm -hmm. this is what's happening in Haiti. This is what's happening yeah. on the other end of this operation that we're not seeing yeah. in the press. And so I yeah. really enjoyed that. Yeah. And there's um, international ops, I think, is the story that really has not totally been told yet. So, yeah. Because a lot of people yeah, are scared and a lot of people coming. don't have the power to and don't know how to send tips in because if you're in Thailand and, you know, you're mistreated by OUR, you might not even know this is happening now, right? So, yeah, no, exactly. And it's hard to talk about, I think, sometimes, even for mm -hmm. podcasters. You're not exactly sure what you can yeah. say. And a lot of information yeah. is not definitive. And it yeah. is, it's difficult to talk about, but really important. So, this is what we will do, everybody. Yeah. Thank you for joining mm -hmm. us. Uh, Laura, it's just been wonderful. And we are <laughs> going to have a part two, everybody. So, I know we're leaving you wanting more because I know you're like, wait, what? Pushing the button. There's not more. So, we will uh, we'll get this out very soon. Um, but in the meantime, with this episode, please leave us your comments. What are your thoughts? on this. Um, some of you may be thinking about this for the first time. I know some of the things Laura said today, 
I had not thought of before. And my mind is kind of racing um, just, just some of these concepts on, on a global level that I have not really considered. So please leave us some comments on what your thoughts on uh, this entire dialogue. And don't forget to like and subscribe, everybody. And if you'd like to be made aware of when new episodes of Mormonish Podcasts come out, you can hit that notification mm -hmm. bell. And if you would like to monetarily uh, support the infrastructure of Mormonish, um, we have links in the show notes that you can donate through PayPal or Venmo to help us. And we just appreciate all of our viewers and listeners so much. And again, Laura, thank you. We're going to get you on the books right away to cover those next three things and probably even more because this has been, this has been a absolutely fascinating conversation. Wouldn't you say, Landon, one of our yep. just absolutely most fascinating. Yeah. I think our viewers and listeners are going to love this. So thank you again, everybody. And we'll say goodbye for now for Mormonish. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.